it just reminded me, I didn't tell them where my sermon was, but Daniel may have already found it. Hey, he found it. All right, a biblical response to Christmas. If you could turn to Luke 2 with me, Luke chapter 2. Every year, I don't know if you all do the same thing, but uh, when I was growing up, my dad would always read the Christmas story, and I feel like every time when he would read Luke 2, he would read it extra slow, all right? This is before we had to, before we opened gifts, but I'd like to read this not extra slow, but just normal slow, all right? So Luke chapter 2, um, we'll read um, down through um, maybe, I think verse 20 is where I'd like to read if we can. So Luke chapter 2, hopefully you found your place, but I'll go ahead and start reading. You can jump in here uh, when you open up your Bible there. Luke 2 reads like this, In those days decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, And the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who wondered it, Now, all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds had told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen as it had been told them. Let's go ahead and pray and ask for God's help as we look at this text together. God, this morning I pray that you would help us to respond to the Christmas story biblically. There are so many people today, the world over, religious and not, uh, born-again Christians and not, who delight in Christmas Day for a multitude of reasons. Many even uh, will readily uh, recite the Christmas story themselves. I pray that you would help us to have a biblical response, to not just be filled with joy, to not just generically be thankful for Jesus, but to respond to him as you would have us do. I pray that this morning you would help us as we look at your word to be able to focus our minds on it and that you would uh, strengthen us uh, to do your will this morning through it. In Christ's name, amen. Well, there are many responses to Christmas. Um, I think a common one is joy. Some of you also, though, you've experienced many Christmases full of sorrow, maybe because there's someone that you have to experience Christmas without for the first time in a year. Christmas brings out 
an emotional response, though, whatever it happens to me. Especially if you're little, I think probably joy is usually the most common response. When I was, I think, all of six years old, and I think I tell the story every year, but it just gets better, all right? And I was all of six years old. The way our house was arranged, we had a basement area, and all the kids' rooms were off the basement. And in the middle of the basement was a huge Christmas tree. <clears throat> and this tree was left on all night, and our doors were cracked open. And the stockings were hung on the fireplace, and it was our opportunity when the sun came up to get up and we could open our stockings, but nothing more. Well, I think I was six, and there were uh, five or six of us kids at that point. I can't remember which. But we all went out into the living room, and it seemed like morning-ish to us. Turns out it was like 3 a.m. We didn't know. We were kids. You know, it's, you know, brightish. It was, you know, the, one of the shortest days of the year. So we go out to the stockings. We start pulling them apart and opening all of the special things we found and little candies and gums and small toys. Some of us even went over and started shaking some of the presents, predicting what might be in them, feeling them, which we were not allowed to do, by the way. And then my youngest brother, who I think was probably three at the time, he had something he wanted us to open. So we kept walking over to all the siblings saying, hey, can you open this for me? We just kept pushing them. It's like, get out of here. We're working on our own stuff. Well, he thought, none of my siblings are going to help me. I'm going to go to the one person I know will help me. I'm going to go to mom. And so that's what he did. Without us knowing, he slipped out quietly like a church mouse upstairs, woke up my mom next to her and said, hey, can you open this for me? And you can only imagine her surprise. Well, we recounted this, I think, five or six years ago to her, and she told us, what she did next was for our benefit. We all decisively saw it as a punishment, both then and now, because what she had us do was go get our sleeping bags and lay out in front of the Christmas tree for the rest of the nighttime and sleep in front of the Christmas tree. Well, we'd already felt all the gifts. We knew what was going on, and so here we spent the next three or four hours just waiting for the sun to arise, staring at these presents, and uh, it was fun, so I was told, so... That is a very common response, though, to Christmas, that kind of joy and anticipation. But to have a truly biblical response, we have to actually listen to how the Bible would encourage us to respond. What I want to do is just briefly take some time to observe how the Bible talks about how we should respond to Christmas. And I want to look at two groups of people in particular. I want to look at Joseph and Mary, and I want to look at the shepherds. They both give us a picture of what it looks like to respond, not just with generic joy or happiness because of presence or anticipation, but really to biblically respond. I'm going to encourage us to respond um, in a few ways with humility, with obedience, and with worship. Those are the three responses I'm going to encourage us with. What I'd like to do, though, as we introduce this is to take a good little bit of time and just walk through some introductory stuff so we kind of get enough of the story under our belts to be able to make these observations. So, if you would with me, let's look back at verses 1 through 3, and let's just quickly look at the registration that was to be had. We find that um, this, to us, is just part of the Christmas story, talking about people going back to be registered or taxed, like Pastor Greg explained last week, is, is really an indication of the registration, the reason for the registration. But twice here, we're told that it's for all the world, which is a reminder of the Roman oppression everywhere. From Joseph and Mary's perspective, Christmas happens under oppression. Twice we're told this. Four times in these short little verses, the word registration is used. So if you're hearing this as a, 21, as a first century Jewish person, you're hearing registration, taxation, oppression. I'm, this is all taking place under this kind of a circumstance. And yet, in spite of this 
oppression itself. This is God's sovereign moving. It's a reminder to us that even the empires of the world who are against God, which is, I'll remind you, all of them, God is moving them to do his will. And that's exactly what happens here. God providentially moves this couple to Bethlehem. He uses the Roman oppression to move his servants into prophetic position. Micah 5, 2 tells us it's in this little city where the Messiah is to be born. And what does God use but the Roman oppression of their overlords? Verses 4 and 5 then depict the journey that Joseph and Mary take. We're told here that they're of the house and lineage of David. This is why they have to go back to Bethlehem. It's almost as if Bethlehem at all these registration points becomes a little microcenter. One of the Messiah is going to come from one of us because this was the house and lineage of David. Somebody from this town. You can imagine perhaps even on the regular when they would have to do these registrations. Maybe somebody would wonder that very question. Who here in this little town, which one of us will the Messiah come through? But how many decades and how many centuries had that question been asked and there'd been no answer? This one, this promised one, was supposed to come from this line. Verses 4 and 5 tell us that Joseph is from this tribe, this lineage of David. This is actually the fifth time in the Gospel of Luke, already at this point, where David is mentioned. Now, when we hear King David, we primarily think of the king. When they heard King David, they primarily thought the Messiah, the kingly line, Jesus, was going to come. So here we're told that Joseph went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, he goes up because he's not thinking of going south like we would. He's thinking of up, as in Jerusalem's up high. And so they went up high where Jerusalem was at. Right next door is Bethlehem. In fact, today, this, the cities are so close, there's just like a, a fence line that separates them. You have to go through like a little gate checkpoint between the two. But it's right next to Jerusalem, this little town of, of Bethlehem. And he's supposed to be registered with Mary. Now, you'll notice here it says that he went up with Mary to be registered, and she was his betrothed. We would say like they were engaged, but it was a little bit more serious than that. You might remember Joseph decided not, uh, when, when he figured out what was going on before the angel had visited him, he said he would divorce her quietly. In other words, this period of engagement was a lot more serious than our period of engagement would be. No shame on uh, you guys, all right? Um, your guys' engagement is totally legit, but I'm just saying that they it was, you were legally bound together to where to separate, you had to be legally divorced. So this was a very serious thing to, to be betrothed, and so he goes up with her. That being said, it would have not been hard at all for Joseph legally to put her away, to quietly do so, and that's what he had planned to do until God spoke to him. So he goes to be registered with her. With her. But you can imagine going back to your hometown where all of your family is from because at the registration, this is what was happening. And you bring with you your betrothed, who for the first time, a lot of your family figures out is expecting a child. Imagine coming back. It would have been very easy for him to leave her. We have no record of the woman having to be present for these registrations, but he brings her with him, in part, because God is providentially moving them into position. Third, let's look briefly at the journey. The journey here, we're, we're told... Um, or, let's see, I, I must have written down the wrong word there because that's not right. What did I write down? The birth. There we go. All right, I just wrote down the wrong thing for me. All right, let's look briefly at the birth. We're told that this is Mary's firstborn, verse 6. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son. This is a verification that she is indeed a virgin, that she is bringing the promised son. 
we find that this birth takes place in a very humble abode. Verse 7 tells us that she wraps him in swaddling cloths, and she laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Now, I know we've probably all heard the Christmas story of the mean innkeeper. There is no innkeeper we know of. This is likely just a shelter along the way. The, room for, the word for inn here is the same word that's used for guest room when Jesus has the, upper, uh, the, the final supper together, and they go find a, a guest room. This is the same word, this little guest room, this little inn. It's likely some kind of sheltered area for travelers, but remember, everybody's returning to this little town of Bethlehem. There's not enough room for everyone. And so they find a little shelter off to the side where they can safely have this little one. Finally, let's look at this final little step, which is the proclamation, the announcement to the shepherds. We find in verse 8 that in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were filled with great fear. This phrase, glory of the Lord, is the same phrase that was used, this weightiness of God that made Moses' face shine so that people couldn't even look at him. He had to have a veil over his face. This is what the shepherds see. We find that there are shepherds near Bethlehem. There's actually, still to this day, huge fields to the south of Bethlehem. This is likely where they were at, way out, kind of away from the city, out at night. Usually from March to November, this was kind of their time to be out with their sheep at this time, before it got too cold, perhaps. What we do know is that they're out there in the middle of this field when it's like the shining that transformed Moses' face is in the sky. And they see an angel of the Lord. And the message is simple, that good news is coming. Good news that should bring, should produce in us great joy. Now, this is important. Who is the good news for? Well, it's for everyone. It's for the nations. It's for all the peoples. This is going to be emphasized as we move throughout. And what is the message? We find it's this, for to you today a Savior is born. If I were to translate that verse in verse 11, maybe more according to the word order of the Greek, it would be this, for born to you today a Savior, which is the Messiah, the Christ, the Lord, in the city of David. So they turn and they run up probably north to the city and they look for the thing the angels said they would see. You'll notice that the one angel is replaced suddenly by a host, which means army. There's an army, a, 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 like a heavenly army proclamation of this little one who's come. Now, as we turn our attention to the responses we should have with Christmas, now having this backdrop in our minds, I want you to just think through some of the commonalities we see between just knowing the Christmas story of Mary and of Joseph, of Zechariah with Elizabeth, and of these shepherds, and all those occasions we have an appearance of an angel, we have then the response of fear, Zechariah, Mary, the shepherds. Thirdly, we have a reassurance by the angel, don't be afraid. Fourthly, a divine message. And then finally, we have a sign. In Zechariah's case, his muteness. Um, in Mary's case, her pregnancy. In the shepherd's case, a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths in a manger. And in all these cases, God is up to something, and he patterns this one after the other. What I'd like to do now with that backdrop in our mind is briefly look at these three responses I mentioned at the beginning. How should we respond to this Christmas story? The three responses, again, I'd like to call your mind to are humility, obedience, and worship, those three. Let's start, first of all, with humility. 
Let's look at Mary and Joseph, and then we'll look at the shepherds, and we'll keep that pattern up as we go through these three responses. Mary and Joseph had to accept God's favor upon them. They are of humble origins. Nazareth itself is a know-nothing town, and even Micah, during his prophecy about Bethlehem that he's trying to raise up at that time, can't help but say it's a little nothing town. It's, it's small, it's nothing. This is a small little town. What we find then is in Luke 2.24, not only do they come from a small nothing town, but they themselves aren't much. We find that when they go to present Jesus in the temple and they offer a sacrifice, they actually offer the sacrifice of a poor person. To offer a sacrifice according, verse 24 says, to what is in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. That was, out of the two options, the one for the poor people. They are themselves of humble origin. But there's also this reality that they have to accept their position. There's a humble acceptance that they have to go through. Like I mentioned earlier, Joseph could have very easily left Mary at home. And bringing her is, in a sense, a, a mark of his own humility to what God had planned. He is, by bringing her, indicating this. God says, this little one is from the Lord, so I believe it. I'll accept whatever kind of ridicule I'll get, whatever kind of questions I'll receive, but I'm going to submit myself to God's plan. Joseph, um, they, they no doubt faced this kind of humiliation, Mary herself. In fact, Jewish teachers today still teach that Jesus was the offspring of Mary and a Roman soldier. How many times did Mary face criticisms or questions? She could have stayed in the shadows, but instead they humbly accepted the plan God had for them. And then on top of that, when they present Jesus, what they do is they offer a sacrifice. That sacrifice was for their purification. For those who might highlight or magnify Mary to the point of almost divinity, she does not do that. No, instead, even in this moment where God has chosen her for a special thing, she admits, I need purification. And so she offers that. Like she says in Luke chapter 1, verse 52, he's brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. And what she's saying is, that's me. There's a humility that's required to accept this Christmas message. The shepherds are also in that same boat. They need to accept this message of salvation. And people didn't generally like shepherds. What do you think, kids, let me ask you this question. What do you think shepherds smelled like? What do you think they smelled like? Any ideas? Timmy? Sheep. Have any of you ever smelled some sheep? They nasty. Yeah. So that's what shepherds smelled like. And in fact, that's exactly how people viewed them. Do you know that the Egyptians, when they had all those Hebrews with them, they actually gave them their own little section of land in part because they didn't do dealings with shepherds because shepherds were the dirty folk. All right? This is exactly how people thought about shepherds even in Jesus' day. We have one writing from this time period that said, in general, shepherds were dishonest and unclean according to the standards of the law. They represented the outcasts and the sinners for whom Jesus came. Such outcasts were the first recipients of good news. It doesn't matter where I've been pastorally. I think one thing is always common in any people group, and that is this, that a lot of times, several people feel like they're outsiders. Maybe you even attend here regularly. But the amount of times I've had people tell me that, I just don't feel like I fit. I don't feel like I belong. I don't feel like I'm like one of you all. 
Jesus came for those kinds of people. He came for the outsiders. He came for those who nobody else would look upon. Now think about this. Who did he pass over when giving this announcement to the shepherds? Who did he pass over? Everyone else. All the upstanding people. All the religious elite. All the, the upstanding citizens. Those who were thought of well. He passed over all of them and he went directly to the shepherds. This tells us something about the heart of God. That he's coming to those who are humble and a lowly estate. By giving... It to the shepherds, God underscores the angel's pronouncement. It's for all people. In other words, if you were there that day, God gave this to shepherds, well, then it surely is for everyone, right? This is what God wants us to know. They also had to humbly accept this, though. Peace that was proclaimed here by the angels starts with recognizing that I need help. There is ultimately no peace on earth until there's peace with God, and that's what the angels are saying. Peace with God is what's coming. There's all kinds of ways to respond to the Christmas message that would be the opposite of humility. We all know this typical one, maybe an irreligious person, which I don't think would be any of us here, or we probably wouldn't be here this morning, who would say, I don't want God, I don't need God. But there's actually a very religious way to say the exact same thing to God. To say something like this, I'm going to obey the Bible, I'm going to do all right things, and then God has to love me and give me a good life. That's not worship. That's not humility. That's an effort to use and control God, not to trust Him. When you obey God in order to earn God's blessing in heaven, then you are seeking to be your own Savior, and you're using God. You're trying to turn God into some kind of pagan deity that can be bought off or manipulated with good works. No, the shepherds, like us, have to humbly accept some gifts require this kind of humility, and that's the humility required by the gospel. I want you to imagine this morning, let's say that this morning I gave Megan a gift, and it was a book, and it said, how to, be, how to keep being the most beautiful person in the world. How much humility would that require, Megan, to express, to receive that gift? Not much, right? Let's say that this morning, though, she gave me a book that said, how to stop being the unkept loser husband that you've always been since I've known you. To receive this gift requires a good deal of humility, does it not? That's actually the kind of gift we have in the gospel. That's actually the Christmas story. The Christmas story is this. I am God's enemy, and there's nothing I can do to make myself right. That's why it's so hard for people to accept. Because you can't take it without admitting, I need it. This is the message. This is the response we must have of humility. So reflect on the realities that require Christmas, your sin. Focus on the needs, like Jesus, like God does himself here, of those who are of humble origin, and pray for God to help you yourselves be humble. Well, that's the first response I'd encourage us to have, humility. And you have to, if you're really going to accept Christmas as God presents it, you have to first humble yourself. Secondly, let me encourage you to respond with obedience. Mary and Joseph, if I were to mark their obedience with one word, it would be this, careful. We're told in verse 38 by Mary that she says, I am the servant of the Lord. That's back in chapter 1. I am the servant of the Lord. We find that Joseph, in spite of all the social pressure, no doubt, the unbelievableness of the situation, he does not put away his wife. 
like we're told in Matthew 1.24, because this is exactly what God said to do. Matthew 1.24 says, When Joseph awoke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife. And then we find some five times just in this text, Mary and Joseph do, and the writer underscores it with this repetition, according to the law. They did exactly what God said. It's careful obedience, responding to whatever God says. I told this story in the past, but there was a, a young boy who was in his living room and playing his the piano, and his mom had told him, you know, you need to, I want you to go clean your room. And he was playing the piano and singing Jesus songs, Christian songs. Well, his mom came in and said, I told you to go clean your room. And he had already thought of that. He responded to her, but mom, I'm singing worship songs to Jesus. And she said, you're not worshiping God if you're at the same time disobeying him. Sometimes we come to church or we perform religious activities as a way to kind of offset our own will. That will not do for this king of Christmas. No, it, you can't do it like that. There's no use pretending to worship God while you're in the act of disobeying him. So instead, like Mary and Joseph, be careful in your obedience. If I were to mark out one word for the shepherds, it would be this, courageous. Courageous obedience. You'll notice that they respond to an implicit command. We read this in the beginning. Even though they're not commanded to go tell anyone, they hear this is for all the people. They're told multiple times, for all the nations. So what do they do? They say, somebody should tell people. We're the ones who know. Let's go tell people. That's exactly what they do. They speak to all who would hear. Now, let me ask you this. How impressive would it have been to be out in a dark night and suddenly have an angelic army shining, shouting this message. Pretty impressive, right? Can you even picture that in your mind? How impressive was the shepherds retelling of that account? Probably not that impressive, right? People would have been like, are you sure you're not just out too late at night with your sheep? Here they are probably trying to say, you can't imagine, it was like this, it was like this, and people are going, Sure it was. I bet it was. Does it feel like that sometimes when you follow this same implicit command? For us, it's explicit. Go tell the nations. When you tell others, do you think the shepherds experience that same response? Maybe you yourselves, like them, you're hesitant to tell others. You'll sound like a crazy person, you say. And yet the shepherds courageously just obeyed. Are you dismissive of the story because you know that people will say, well, let me do some great act to earn God's favor, like Naaman. I'm not going to go dip in the Jordan River seven times. Let me do something grand. So why would I tell people about this when they really just want to earn God's favor? Or maybe you're hesitant or reluctant because you say, oh, I can't tell the gospel like maybe Pastor Greg would. I can't explain what if they ask me a question I don't know. Look to the shepherds. Humility then produces disobedience, doesn't it? The two are linked. The first response begets the second. Let me encourage you yourself to respond with this kind of obedience. And finally, I'll point out worship, the response of worship. And Mary and Joseph respond with what I'm calling thoughtful meditation. These are people who do not lightly pass by the promises of God, but return to them over and over. Verse 
19 says, Mary treasured up all these things. This was an accounting term for storing up and keeping safe. How do you know if something's safe? Well, you keep going back and checking on it, right? And this is what Mary does in her mind. She continues to return to these things over and over again in her own mind. And both, we find in verse 33, they respond with worship. And when they hear what is said about Jesus, verse 33 says that they marveled. This is a word for being astonished or amazed, and it has this element of delight in it. They hear what's true about Jesus, and they're ones who meditate on it. We, we know no words, that uh, almost no words, aside from Joseph speaking to the angel that Joseph said, Jesus is earthly father. What we know of him was he was a man who did just this. He meditated on the words of God. And maybe you say, I hesitate. It would be hard for me, like the shepherds did, to go and tell others. I'm a quieter personality. And while, yes, you may need to get over that, to borrow Pastor Greg's verbiage a moment ago in some instances, you actually have usually a superpower here, don't you? An ability to really meditate. God has created you that way, hasn't he? So rather than shrink back from God's commands, instead, what you'll find is when you do this, when you're thoughtfully meditative, it will embolden you where you didn't think it was possible before. It really will. Actually, responding with worship then begets the second response of obedience. This is what God wants for you, to be somebody who thoughtfully meditates on the Christmas story. As you've given thought to Christmas this year, what does that meditation look like practically? Let me give you one suggestion if you're not sure. And that would simply be this. Over this week, we don't have to limit Christmas to today. Take some time each day to just slowly, thoughtfully read the Christmas story and jot down one question you have. There are lots of questions, even just like from a like historical standpoint. What is this in? Why is, and I've tried to answer some of these as we've gone through this. But ask a question. Be thoughtful in your meditation. Finally, let's turn to the shepherds one more time and look at their proclamation, which I'm calling this thoughtful proclamation. Number one, in verse 15, the shepherds, when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that's happened, which the Lord has made known to us. First of all, they observe God's works carefully. Now, so often attempts at worship can focus primarily on us and our experience. Worship can be self-focused. Not true worship, but false worship. You'll notice that that's not what the shepherds did. Their primarily, primary focus wasn't on what they were doing, but rather on what God had done. True worship starts with careful looking, careful listening, and then responding to that. What would it have looked like for them to trust the angel's word? It would have looked like verse 15. Let's go see it. They said it's there. It's there. This kind of careful observation of what God had said then produces in them this praise and glorifying of God. Verse 20 says, And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen as it had been told them. How did they glorify, that is, make God's words weighty? How did they praise God? Well, they, first of all, believed what God said and went to see the child, didn't they? They actually listened to what God said and banked their actions on it. And then they talked about it, both externally to other people and internally, themselves. 
want you to think for a moment of what this would have looked like for their own families. Where did they go when they were done telling everyone? Back to be what? Shepherds. That's what they did. <laughs> but do you think they ever experienced night quite like that again? No. But how many times did they turn to each other and do just this? Make God's words weighty by repeating them to each other. Make God's words weighty by rejoicing in what they'd seen together. Tell others, tell their families for generations forward that they were the humble ones to whom God came that night. Jesus obviously did not stay a baby. That's news to some people, though. There was a story I heard a few years back where there was a, a child of two parents who were not religious in any way, but somehow she got caught up in the general Christmas hubbub and had heard enough songs about Jesus that she started to become fascinated with this story of this baby born in a manger. So much so that for Christmas, she asked for like a little nativity set one year, and she would play with it and tell little stories with it, and she enjoyed the baby Jesus. One day, I think it was a few months later around Easter time, she saw a depiction of Jesus on a cross. And she asked her dad, Dad, what's this? Somehow it had never crossed her mind, or she wasn't old enough to quite comprehend what she was seeing, but that year she was, and she said, Dad, who, who's that? He said, oh, I, I guess I never told you that part of the story. Yeah, he actually dies. That's kind of the, the reason that people celebrate him. Well, so many of us, practically speaking, during Christmas kind of keep Jesus in the manger. And really what we should do as part of our worship is extend this little one's life all the way through to the cross to be thoughtful about Christ coming to die for us. So I would encourage you as you worship Jesus like Mary and Joseph and like the shepherds to pray like this, worshipfully to him, to meditate on his truths, to tell others about him, to remind yourself of why he came in the first place. As we close here, let me just draw your attention to three applications, and, uh, and then we'll sing a final hymn as we depart this morning. First of all, let me encourage you to, as part of the humility that I already encouraged, to accept God's declarations about you. Now, there's two possible declarations God has given, because there's two, top, top, two possible type of people here. There's people who are outside of Christ, and there's people who are in Christ. And you both have a declaration set about you. If you are outside of Christ, that is, you have not trusted Christ alone for salvation, God's declaration about you is that you're a sinner and that there's nothing you can do to make yourself right with God. It is not humility to reject God's message about you and say, no, I'm going to earn it anyhow. That's not humility. That's arrogance. That's not worthiness. That's unworthiness. Accept God's declaration about you. And then for the first time, you can accept the Christmas message. But there's another group here, and that is those who are genuinely, truly blood-bought children of God. Because you've turned from your sin, you've accepted that first declaration, and you've said, I need Christ and Christ alone for salvation. He has then taken all the weight of the wrath of God on the cross and died for you in your place and given you his unending God-sized righteousness. But what declaration has he said about you? He said this, justified. So often, Christians, maybe even during a season like Christmas, they hear the Christmas message and they just keep asking, but is it really true for me? Maybe for decades now, you've worshipped with God's people, and for decades, you go in and out of doubt in your own assurance of salvation. 
Let me say to you too, it is not humility to doubt God's words to you. How do we know that God really will save us when we turn from our sins and express belief in Christ alone? How do we know that? Because God said it. That's how we know it. And this is God's declaration about you. And humility means accepting that, believing it. Secondly, let me encourage you to obey all the more as a Christian. I'm talking now just to Christians because you have God's favor. There's often this fear, perhaps, in the general religious world that the way you make people holy is you hold salvation over their heads, like the sword of Damocles that, like, unless you obey, you will be severed away from God. But the Bible is an entirely different thing. The Bible says this, because you already have God's favor, respond with obedience. Every other attempt to make yourself right with God by doing good things attempts to put God in your power. You've manipulated God to such a point with your good deeds that he has to respond to you. But the Bible tells the opposite message, that you can do nothing to put God. God needs nothing from you. He existed before you. He made you. He sustains your very breath, the beat of your heart. What can you do to put him in your debt? Nothing. So the gospel message comes at you the exact opposite way. It doesn't encourage obedience to earn God's favor. It encourages obedience because you already had it. Every act of obedience, then, is, is no act of manipulating God to somehow have to love you now. It's a response to what he's done. And even in that obedience, there's humility, isn't there? For the first time, you can obey without strings attached. See, without Christ, every act of obedience is in a way an attempt to manipulate the divine God of the universe, which is a failing effort every time. But only after Christ can you actually obey without any strings attached. You don't need anything from God because he's already given you everything in Christ. For the first time, you can actually obey out of love. You can't do that before Christ. You can't do that before you're a true born-again Christian. It's always manipulation. Thirdly, let me encourage you to thoughtfully live before his face. I'm kind of borrowing an Old Testament imagery, but the Old Testament often will talk about before the Lord, and the phrase is actually before his face. And that picture is supposed to be picturesque for us. That God is actually watching us. He's looking down on us. And that life itself is to be lived before him, in front of him. Now let me ask you, what would it look like for the shepherds to go their, the rest of their life, like we're told they did, glorifying and praising God? You know what it would have looked like? Shepherding. That's what it would have looked like. They would have continued to shepherd, right? However, there's a kind of shepherding that's different when you're shepherding before God's face. What would it look like, moms and dads, for in our home to live our lives before God's face. At the very least, it would be like this, constantly saying, hey kids, God's here. It would, it would look like actually recognizing God's presence in our day-to-day -day experiences. What would it look like for you? Maybe you have a desk job and you think, well, I, I don't have any kids to point out to. Well, you've got you, all right? And each day, as you live, what would it look like for you to live before God's face? At the very least, it would, it would, it would mean at least two things. As you move through life that each day, you would be constantly asking for help, right? I mean, like actually stopping and asking for help. You've got a report to write. Who can help you? God can. God, you're watching me today. I want to do this, and I need your help to do this. 
And secondly, it would look like this, giving God credit. Now, sometimes that might be publicly, but oftentimes the bigger battle is personally. To actually say, this wasn't because I'm such an amazing person that I did this amazing thing. God, you enabled this. Thank you. This project I've been working on for months, you're the one who helped me do this. God, you're to be praised. This is what it would look like to thoughtfully live before his face. Moms, what would it look like at home for you all day long to keep saying to your kids, hey, oh, look, God's here. He helped us with that. Let's ask for God's help right now. Let's pray afterwards. Thank God for what he did. God is here. He's always watching. We're living before his face. That's what worship looks like on the regular, doesn't it? That's what it'll look like for the shepherds on the regular. Let's have this kind of biblical response to Christmas. Humility, obedience, and worship. This is the Christmas we have. This is the response that the Bible gives to us. Let's pray and ask for God's help, and then we'll close with a, with a hymn. God, thank you so much for coming. This gift of Christmas is a gift that requires humility uh, like, like no other gift, to admit that we are sinners. That's the entryway. That's the doorway into the gift. And then to obey, not to earn your favor, to manipulate you, to put you in our debt, but because we already have all your favor. And then to worship you day in and day out, like Mary and Joseph had to do, like these shepherds did, daily telling people about you, courageously, thoughtfully thinking on you, meditating on you, living before your face. So I pray you would help us to respond like that this Christmas. In Christ's name.